From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. Now, did you know that one of the first ways to measure bird migration was counting the silhouettes of night migrating birds as they passed in front of a full moon? Or that British radar operators during World War II were mystified by angels, quote, end quote, appearing on their screens that turned out to be seabirds in flight? Flight Paths, how a passionate and quirky group of pioneering scientists solved the mystery of bird migration, is ornithology writer Rebecca Heisman's first book and tells the story of how we know what we know about bird migration, the methods scientists use to track this amazing natural phenomena from the origins of bird banding to the latest in high-throughput genetic sequencing and space-based tracking systems. Flight Paths, and Rebecca Heisman in the first part of the show. Then Lisa Thompson and Lynn Zumo from the Natural History Museum of Utah come on to talk about a new exhibition. It's called A Climate of Hope. We love to hear that word after climate. This landmark exhibition is designed to help Utahns find opportunity in the face of the climate crisis. Environmental awareness and education. That's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. And you are listening to KPCW's This Green Earth. I am Claire Wiley. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And we are speaking with Rebecca Heisman about her new book, Flight Pass, How a Passionate and Quirky Group of Pioneering Scientists Solved the Mystery of Bird Migration. Thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Well, um, your book is super interesting because we just had a conversation with Scott Widensall about bird migration and uh, we kind of talked about a lot of flight patterns and uh, different types of birds and, and, and what they're doing but your book in particular doesn't just talk about the birds in flight themselves but really digs into the different methods by which we understand different species and how they migrate and one of which we just talked about was uh, the moon watching. So I, I wonder if we can just start from there and dive right in and talk about some of these interesting different methods as they evolved across the space of time. Yeah, exactly. So my book is not so much about what migrating birds do and how they do it as how we figured all of this out because it turns out that ornithologists are really good at borrowing ideas from all other sorts of fields of science in their quest to figure out birds. So yeah, you mentioned moon watching, which had its heyday in the kind of the 1940s to the 1960s, where they were trying to figure out a good way just to compare how much migration was happening at one place in time with how much was going on at another place in time. And the best way they could come up with then was to count these silhouettes of birds passing in front of the moon and do some math to turn that into a standardized measurement. And yeah, as time has gone on, this has gotten more and more high tech. Today, we use weather radar to gather a lot of large scale data about bird migration, which, as you mentioned, actually goes back to World War II. We analyze rare hydrogen isotopes in bird feathers. We sequence bird genomes to come up with things that are sort of like a 23andMe for birds. So all sorts of different areas of scientists, or excuse me, areas of science have kind of gotten pulled into this quest to figure out where birds are going and what habitats they rely on over the year. Uh, I want to make sure I understand that moon watching. So there is <laughs> the most obvious thing, a full moon. Yeah. And birds or, you know, are flying 
across the face, so, so to speak, the face of the moon. Yes. And so scientists actually were, A, attempting to count the number of birds, but not just that, trying to identify the birds just from their, their silhouettes. No, they weren't really necessarily trying to identify particular species. Okay. What they were more using this for was just to get a, a broad count of like how much migration is going on, like overall. Is this a big night for migration with a lot of birds moving through? Is it a slow night with a lot fewer birds moving through? And so if you gathered this kind of information at a lot of different dates and locations, you could start to put together sort of a large-scale picture of bird migration patterns. It was a guy working in the 50s named George, named, um, George Lowry who got volunteers from all over the U.S. to collect this data on the same couple nights in October, and it provided sort of the first continent-wide snapshot of, of large-scale bird migration patterns. Uh, and that's really interesting, too, to think about back then in the 50s, they would collect the data and then, I guess, write it all down by hand and then put it in an envelope and mail it to him. And eventually he would receive it and he would sit down and compile all this data. Exactly. Yeah, he had, <laughs> didn't have a computer, didn't have the Internet. This was before most zoologists had any training in statistics. And it actually took Lowry and the other researcher that he was working with 16 years from when they did that did that big project oh where they gathered all this all this continent-wide data to when they finally published it because it took them that long to look up they wanted to compare with weather patterns so they had to look up data on weather patterns from all over the country you wow. know in books and then do all this math by hand and draw maps by hand to display all of the, all of what they found and it took them quite a long time to put it all together. It's hard to imagine now when we have you know, satellite imagery of the Earth and computers, like yeah. how, how much more difficult it was then. And what were the years that that was happening? When was the first impetus to doing this? Lowry got started with that in the 40s, and he first came up with it as a way to prove that birds migrated over the open waters of the Gulf of Mexico on mm. a regular basis, because there was the birds do this. They fly straight over the Gulf of Mexico. But in the 40s, there was some controversy about this, and so he actually went out mm. on a boat into the Yucatan Peninsula and pointed a, his telescope up at the moon to prove that there was a large, a large amount of bird migration happening over the Gulf. And then it was in the 50s when he scaled it up and collected all of this nationwide data. I believe it was 1952 that he recruited hundreds of volunteers from Canada down into Panama. And then it took him so long to publish the analysis that it was the 1960s before it finally came out. Wow. And, and of course, during that time, there's uh, radar, uh, you know, first evolving. And you, you, the book talks about how radar kind of uh, kind of in an incidental uh, coincidental fashion uh, started to be used as a science to identify birds and, and uh, flight paths and migra migratory patterns. Yeah, it was radar that essentially put George Lowry and moon watching out of business. Yeah. So you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned World War II, and that was when radar first came in, came into regular use to watch for enemy planes incoming. And they started picking up these weird signals that turned out to be birds. It took them a while to prove that that's what's going on, but they realized that they could pick up migrating birds on radar. And so after the war, radar started to become used by meteorologists as an early warning system for hurricanes turned out that birds showed up just as well on weather radar as they did on military radar. So it was really great news for ornithologists when they built this nationwide network of radar systems. And just like with moon watching, when you're using weather radar, you can't necessarily tell what species of individual birds you're looking at, but you can get sort of a bigger picture idea of just the volume of migration happening. 
And so it was one of George Lowry's grad students, whose name was Sidney Gotro, who first really figured out how to make weather radar a useful tool for ornithology and essentially put Lowry in moonwatching, made all of that obsolete. And another method that I find very fascinating is the nocturnal flight calls. Uh, what are the benefits to this research and can you talk us through what that is and how that's done? Yeah, so I think a lot of people actually don't realize that most songbirds migrate at night. That's mm -hmm. what makes watching them fly in front of the moon possible. And when they're migrating at night, a lot of species make unique calls that they don't make at any other time called nocturnal flight calls. Mm. So a lot of work went into just figuring out what species makes what call, because it's not always easy to figure that out if the only time you ever hear them is when birds are passing overhead at night. But once once that work had been done to kind of straighten a lot of that out, now you can do things like put out a microphone at night and just passively record the sounds of birds passing overhead and use that to get an idea of both the total volume of migration and the species involved. So there's this is still early days, I would say, for that research because they're still developing artificial intelligence tools to make it a lot faster to pick out and identify those calls. But it's, a, it's an area with a lot of promise that a lot of people are working on. And uh, it, did you have a follow-up to that? Sorry. Um, and the other one that I wanted to talk about was the radio tele telemetry. Is that, am I just yeah. saying that right? <laughs> um, and, and describe what that is and what information that you glean from that. Yeah, radio telemetry. So I think most people are probably familiar with the idea of putting a radio transmitter collar on a wolf or a deer or something like that, but they also do make very tiny radio transmitters that you can put on a bird. This started with a guy named Bill Cochran working back in the 60s and 70s, and really the whole field of wildlife telemetry, wolves and deer and radio collars and everything goes back to him because he was the first person to just figure out how to make radio transmitters for wildlife practical. But he did a lot of work on birds. And his transmitters only had a range of a few miles, which meant he was doing crazy things in the 70s, like putting a radio transmitter on a thrush and then following this bird for a, a thousand miles over a week all the way up into Canada as it continued on its migration north in a station wagon with a hole cut in the top for a radio receiver. So just mind boggling some of the things people have done to try and figure out migrating birds. Now this has advanced quite a bit and we have a really cool system of what are called MODIS towers, which are these automated radio towers so that you don't have to follow the bird. You just put up a network of towers and then every time a radio tagged bird flies by, it kind of pings the tower and you can get an idea of where a bird is gone. Wow. Okay. I had never heard about MODIS towers. I mean, um, but along those lines, bird banding, of course, we're all familiar with bird banding. Is there a history associated with banding uh, that, that the book covers? Yeah, the very first chapter in the book is actually about banding because yeah. this is sort of where it all started. Bird banding goes back in North America, goes back to the very early 20th century. And so there's a whole history behind how, you know, a few people making metal bands in their garage, basically, and putting them on birds. They're the, they put them on as sort of a little bracelet that goes around their ankle, and each one has a unique number so that then you can identify the bird again. How this eventually became, you know, systematized and taken over by the government. There's an office at the USGS that oversees this now hmm. so that we have, you know, very good oversight of all of this data. And most birds that are banded are, ne are never seen again. You know, the goal is always that someone will either recapture this bird or find it after it's died and right. report the band number. That happens sometimes, but bird banding is actually very, very useful 
even when that doesn't happen, because a lot of these bird banding stations that are also called bird observatories have been in operation for so long, catching and banding birds during spring and fall migration. And when they do this, each bird they catch to band, they record, you know, we caught this species, it was, you know, male, it was, we think it was two years old, et cetera, et cetera. They record each data, like a lot of data about each bird. And so you can look through their data sets over time to see patterns like how spring migration has gradually been getting earlier and earlier and earlier over the 20th century, presumably related to climate change, of course. So it just gives us this large scale long-term database on when specific species of birds are passing through certain places. We're speaking with Rebecca Heisman. She's an ornithology writer and author of the new book, her first book, Flight Paths, how a passionate and quirky group of pioneering scientists solved the mystery of bird migration. So we've talked about like, like banding and other uh, processes of, of uh, identifying bird migratory patterns. Let's talk about now uh, more modern techniques, genetic sequencing. What's going on there? Yeah, I alluded to this as being sort of like 23 and me for birds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this idea of doing something like this goes back to the 1980s. It was an ornithologist named Tom Smith who, working back in the very early days of bird genetics, was thinking, I wonder if we could you know, sort of catalog genetic variation across the whole geographic range of a species. There wasn't the technology to do it in the 1980s. But then the Human Genome Project came along, and there was all of this investment put into better, cheaper ways to sequence large volumes of genetic data, and it did not take long for ornithologists to borrow that. So now this is called the Bird Gene Escape Project, and they're doing, basically what they're doing is they'll take a bird species of interest, and they will get blood samples, which are, you know, just, just like getting some blood drawn at the doctor. They can just painlessly collect a small amount of blood from a, from a live bird and then release it back into the wild. Mm -hmm. So they'll get these blood samples from all across the breeding range of a species. So let's say we have a species of bird that, you know, nests across most of North America, and then it flies off to South America for the winter. When you get this genetic data for all of its breeding range, you can kind of map genetic variations from place to place. So within one species, you know, birds living in one spot might have one genetic variant and birds living in another spot might have a genetic a different genetic variant. So again, sort of like 23andMe for birds, where then if you catch a bird from this species where, while it's migrating south or while it's in South America, you can pluck a feather and do some genetic analysis and figure out roughly where in North America it started out from, where it bred. Well, okay. So for example, say <laughs> plovers. Uh, plovers fly great distances. Um, you're saying that the certain types of plovers or, uh, I don't know, family of plovers or so may uh, migrate from specific areas in Canada to specific areas in South America, not just have, they just don't go in, you know, hey, we're just going to South America for the, for the winter. We, they go to a specific area. Yeah, what you're talking about is actually, there's a term for that. It's called migratory connectivity. Hmm. In some species, that's the case where like, you know, specific groups of birds within a species will migrate to like a specific spot in South America. Right. In other species, that's not necessarily the case. And they might just all sort of mingle all over the place within their South American range. And yeah, this um, genetic sequencing, the Bird Gene Escape Project is one tool that we can use to figure that out. And the reason that's important is because if you have a species that's declining, you really need that level of detail to figure out like, okay, if this 
eastern population is declining and this western population isn't, is it because the eastern population is going to some specific spot in Colombia that's uh, being walked? Yeah. You know, so you need that amount of detail, not just for the species, but for with for populations within a species to really be able to target conservation efforts uh, effectively. Right. Interesting. Okay. And and that's kind of the point to all this, isn't it, is the conservation of these birds and to understand them better. Um, and, you know, you, you had talked about the radio telemetry and how they put those um, backpacks, I guess, is what you call them, little yeah. backpacks on them, and then the bracelets. How does this affect the birds, that particular bird when they're flying? And, um, you know, what are, are some of these practices hard on the birds or <laughs> how do they take that? <laughs> Well, bird banding, the little metal bracelets, those are so lightweight and, you know, they don't, they usually don't irritate the skin. Those have almost no effect on the birds that wear them. Probably the most stressful part of that is just getting captured in a, in a net so that they can do the banding. And the scientists who do this have to go through rigorous training and get permits and everything to show that they know how to do it correctly without injuring the birds. When you get into things like radio transmitters and satellite transmitters, where the bird is wearing, as you said, sort of a little backpack, those do add weight to the bird. Um, scientists use rules of thumb, like they try not to use a transmitter that's over 3% or over 5% of a bird's body weight. It's really impossible to get it to where there's no effect at all. But what they will do is sometimes they'll do a, a, a control group where they'll put radio transmitters on a few birds and then on a few other birds, they'll just do bands on the, bra on the, on the wrists and then see if when they come back the next spring, if the birds that have the backpacks are less likely to come back, then they're like, okay, we need to put the brakes on this because this is having too much of an effect. Um, I think in most cases, even though there's always going to be some small, some small effect on that bird to be carrying that backpack on its migration, the argument can be made that when you're collecting data that's going to benefit an entire species by letting us target these conservation efforts effectively, it's it's worth a trade-off to cause you know some amount of inconvenience or irritation for a small number of individuals. I actually took this step of, of talking to an ethicist, a philosopher, when I was writing the book to kind of talk through some of these questions. Really? Okay. Yeah. What, what was that conversation like? Well, I managed to find a philosopher whose job is sort of ornithology ethics. So he's wow. someone who a lot of, yeah, he spends a lot of his time thinking about the ethical implications of various types of wildlife research and in particular bird research. And so we talked about, you know, does the the benefit to a species outweigh, you know, the small but real harm that can happen to a few individuals. And I can understand why people would come down on both sides of that question, but I, I generally come down to that if there's real measurable benefits for a whole population or a whole species, it's worth small potential harms to a few individuals. And a lot of the ornithologists who I talk to who use these techniques are very motivated to make sure that they are taking good care of the individual birds that they interact with and really minimizing the effects on them. And then also on the other side, bringing every possible use out of the data that they collect. So they are getting, you know, the biggest bang for their buck when they are causing these effects to these birds. And, and perhaps we can honor those birds, you know, with some type of hall of fame. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, give them a little uh, shout out the, 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 the science that they help uh, forward or the information help forward. So. Yeah, I mean, a couple individual birds have become very famous. Oh, really? There's a, yeah, there's a bar-tailed godwit who was, who was designated E7. That was her code. Who they put, they, there had been a theory for a long time 
Based on bird banding data, they thought that bar-tailed godwits, which are a shorebird that breed in Alaska, probably in the fall were making a nonstop flight all the way across the Pacific Ocean to New Zealand without stopping, mm -hmm. which is just amazing. And so to prove this, they actually surgically implanted satellite transmitters within the body cavity of the birds because they were worried about messing with their aerodynamics if they had backpacks. Right. And so E7 was the first bird that they successfully tracked via satellite across the Pacific from Alaska to New Zealand. And when this happened, it made headlines around the world. And E7, that particular bird, became a, a wild bird celebrity. Oh, that's fascinating. There you go. That's great. Well, well homage done. to E7. And yes. in, in your research and um, as you were uncovering uh, this different information, what was totally unexpected or surprising for you as you were writing this book? Oh, gosh, there's so many stories. It's almost hard to pick one. I really think moon watching is the first thing that comes okay. to mind just because I hadn't even heard of that one. I mean, it's not used very much anymore. And so when I started reading about the, the crazy moon watching project where he was recruiting all of these volunteers, you know, in the pre-internet era, that one just blew my mind. I don't know. There's so many, though. There's so many stories in the book. Is there a species that fascinates you the most? Hmm. Ooh. So the godwood that I mentioned is really is really famous for this flight over the over the excuse me, over the Pacific. But there's another much smaller bird called the black pole warbler. This is a bird that weighs about the same as a ballpoint pen. And on their fall migration, to get from New England down to their wintering grounds in South America, instead of going over land, they just launch themselves out over the Atlantic Ocean and fly over the open water of the Atlantic Ocean for three days mm. to get from North America or, or from New England to South America. And some of these birds breed in Alaska. So they are starting in Alaska flying all the way across North America, west to east to New England, wow. and then launching themselves out over the ocean for a three-day flight to South America. So when you think of how small that bird is, it's really quite a feat. Oh, it's unbelievable. Um, and also when you think about the kind of the evolutionary nature of the migratory um, uh, attitude that they have, like that, okay, I have to fly south. They, yeah. oh, th this is kind of a... Uh, hit or miss proposition over time, over generations, because they don't just start. Well, we're in, I'm in Ontario and it's you know late August. Let's fly four thousand miles uh, to <laughs> where it's warm. They have to kind of figure this out generation over generation. Yeah, I mean, some of it is certainly just genetically programmed, yeah. especially in these small birds. In you know, larger, more social, more long-lived birds like shorebirds, there's evidence that there's more of a social learning component where they are kind of picking up from their flock mates, you know, cues about where to fly to and when to stop. But yeah, it's really quite something how this all evolved. And do you find it varies by species, but are the patterns primarily the same each time? Do they fly the same? Um, you know, I heard some fly in figure eights. Are there uh, different patterns that they choose or is it the same year after year? like an elephant who will go on the same path year after year. Yeah, I think if you're looking at a specific population of birds, they're going to do more or less the same thing year after year. Okay, so uh, a few more minutes. What's next? What's, the, uh, what's next in, in the area of science, technology, in tracking bird mig migratory patterns and behaviors? Yeah, well, these little backpack tracking devices are getting smaller and smaller and more and more high tech all the time. So they have devices now that will not just transmit you the bird's location, 
but also, you know, its altitude and its speed, how fast it's flying and like what the barometric pressure is around it and things like that so that we can gather more information about how atmospheric conditions affect birds and things like that. And because they're getting smaller all the time, we can that means we can safely put them on smaller and smaller birds. So that really seems to me to be kind of where the the cutting edge is now is these the backpack devices that are just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and at the same time able to do more and more and more. So it's really opening up a whole new field of figuring out that that migratory connectivity piece that we mm. still need for so many species. Um, last couple minutes or two. Uh, let's talk about you. You're yes, an ornithology exactly. writer. I'm always, as a birder, I'm always interested in people's kind of origin story with respect to birding. Mine was when I was eight years old, and and the first time I saw a whole flock of evening grosbeaks mm. uh, devouring the sunflower seeds, uh, that was my that was my gateway bird into birding. Yeah. Do you have one a story like that? Yeah, for me it was an eastern towhee. Okay. I grew up in Ohio and my parents every winter would put out, you know, a feeder with sunflower seeds in the backyard just for fun. And we got all the, you know, the usual suspects, your your chickadees and your mm -hmm. song sparrows and stuff. <laughs> and then one winter, this weird bird that I had never seen before showed up out there on the ground under the feeder eating the seeds. And my parents, you know, they put up this feeder for fun, but they weren't birders. But we had this probably quite out of date little like birds of Ohio book on the shelf. And so I picked that up and flipped through it and managed to figure out myself that it was an Eastern towhee or, or the book had the old name, the Rufus sided towhee. And yeah, I was hooked. That was it. <laughs> exactly. And, and now you write about uh, birds and uh, ornithology and you even have a uh, newsletter, right? Bird of passage. Yeah. I just started this. So I do have a monthly Substack newsletter now where I, I'm doing some original writing about, you know, climate and ornithology and things and also providing book recommendations and links to stuff around the websites or, or excuse me, around the Internet. So my website is RebeccaHeisman.com. That's probably the easiest way to find that. But yep. Yeah. So and I, there's so much to talk to you about. And if you do go to your website, you can see other articles that you wrote because we also wanted to get into the different structures of wings. But maybe oh. that's another that's another day <laughs> because we've run out of time. But uh, yeah, if people pop on over to your website again, that's RebeccaHeisman.com. They can find some of those other articles. But I think I, I might want to have you on again because yes. it's also fascinating to me, the uh, this world of birds, uh, especially in the area of migration, and then also giving that human element of how we've tried to understand them better and, and conservation And how efforts. crazy, how crazy some humans are when it comes to <laughs> birding. Right, Rebecca? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yes. maybe we'll have you on and then we'll have on our local birder, one of our local yeah. birders right. that loves. Um, but we so appreciate you coming on the show, Rebecca. That's Rebecca Heisman. She has just written a book. It's called Flight Paths, How a Passionate and Quirky Group of Pioneering Scientists Solved the Mystery of Bird Migration. So thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, let's take a break for a couple of underwriters. And when we come back... We'll be speaking with Lisa Thompson and Lynn Zumo from the Natural History Museum of Utah, uh, talking about a new exhibition called A Climate of Hope. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth. 
a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And joining us for the second part of the show is Lisa Thompson and Lynn Zumo. They're both from the Natural History Museum of Utah, and they're here to talk about a new exhibition there called A Climate of Hope. Thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning, Lisa and Lynn. I thought we would start, let's start here. Uh, Lisa, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the museum. Sure. Um, I am an exhibit developer at the museum, which means I work on the content and story sides of exhibitions. And I work with an incredibly talented team of designers who then translate those stories into physical experiences for our visitors. Okay. And Lynn, what do you do at the museum? Hi, I'm the curator of learning sciences. Um, so what that means is that I am a researcher and I study how people learn. I have joint appointment with the University of Utah in the educational psychology department. And my research at the museum focuses on how people learn through different exhibits and learning experiences at the museum. So I get the opportunity to partner with incredible people like Lisa and the exhibits team um, as we try to understand what people are taking away from different exhibits at the museum. Right. And so wh what they take away and how they do that, I guess, visually or is it uh, the auditorially or, or maybe reading? Is that how? Is that all, that right? All of that. Yes. Um, so typically I, I pay attention to what people say and do when they're in an exhibit. Um, so the conversations that they have, the people that they're with, that can tell us a lot about how people are making sense of new information and, and what they're leaving the experience with. Huh. And exhibitions are great for um, kind of firing up all five senses, right? We try to get them all in there. Um, maybe not always taste, but <laughs> we try to get them all in there with that exhibitions. And one in particular that we want to talk about is actually launching this weekend. It is called A Climate of Hope. Um, now, Lynn or Lisa, do one of you want to take that and tell us a little bit about uh, what that exhibit is and what it entails? Sure, I'll start and Lynn can chime in. Um, so. A Climate of Hope is a different kind of exhibit about climate change. I would say in the past, a lot of museums had exhibits about climate change, but they really focused very heavily on data, you know, lots of graphs and charts. Um, and they often focused on stories that were far away from the people visiting the exhibit. Like they might be, you know, focusing on the Arctic mm -hmm. or um, a, a island nation, or they might be about the future, things that were going to happen in the, you know, sometime in the future. Our exhibit is really grounded in Utah. It's telling stories about this place that we know and love and things that are happening here and now. And it also really focuses, um, it, it embraces the idea of rational hope. And this is an idea that the climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe talks about a lot. And it's the idea that we need to acknowledge the magnitude and scope of the challenges that we're facing, but we need to balance that with an understanding of the um, solutions, the technologically feasible, economically beneficial solutions that we have at hand and and all the people around the world that are implementing them right now. And so we look at a lot of people in Utah, incredible projects all over the state that are tackling climate challenges in their communities. And where did um, this idea germinator come from? And then is it specific to Utah or is this something that's happening nationally? Uh, I think there's a shift going on 
nationally right now in how museums are seeking to communicate about climate change. And that's in part because there's a, a becoming a well-established body of research on how people learn about climate change. It's just one of the things that Lynn studies and so that we can begin to implement that uh, more effectively in our museum exhibits. And so specifically this was uh, created within Utah. Was that a, uh, you all got together, you had a meeting about it, you thought this is really a topic that we want to tackle. How did that all start? Sure. So we, um, when the Natural History Museum of Utah opened at our current home in the Rio Tinto Center in 2011, we had uh, on the Sky Gallery on Level 5, one of the walls did have a, a small exhibit on climate change, and it was a lot of graphs. <laughs> and um, one of the graphs was the famous hockey stick that shows the carbon parts per million. And the problem is we opened that exhibit in 2011, and pretty soon that graph was out of date. And then people started helping us update it by taking sticky notes from a talkback exhibit nearby and writing the current carbon parts per million on it and mm -hmm. putting it on our exhibit for us. And so we just knew that it was starting to be out of date. And we had an opportunity to collaborate with a wonderful researcher at the University of Utah who is doing research on, on climate change in forests. And he had a grant from the NSF that included funds for us to begin to think about how would we renovate this uh, space. So this is the first full gallery uh, that we are completely changing over, completely refreshing since uh, the museum opened in 2011 at our, at our current home. And so that was kind of the, the origins of it. And uh, can you break down uh, what we can expect to see, some of the pieces, some of the highlights that are happening? I know we don't want to give away everything, but we also really want to talk about what people can see. Yeah, so the exhibit is chock-a-block full of interactives. I think there are six digital interactives plus a couple dioramas, a wonderful play table where kids can um, play around in a, in a climate-adapted community. You'll be able to, um, there are sections about the impacts of climate change in Utah, things that are happening here and now. Um, but also, for example, um, talking about how they, um, impact people's lives in ways that we can all relate to. There's a scrolling story that talks about how climate change impacts our health. That's um, not something that maybe people think about on a daily basis, but it's, it, it will be you know, one of the major impacts that, that we face. Lynn, do you wanna add anything to that? Um, just that, it, to me, and I think um, looking at what has been done in the past with other museums and other learning experiences about climate change, this this feels like something different. Um, it aims uh, to, to reach people in different ways because what we understand from a research perspective is that learning about climate change is actually quite different from the learning processes that take place around um, topics that we might more commonly see in a museum. Uh, like dinosaurs, um, like different aspects of biology. Uh, and it's different because it involves emotions and ideas about who people are. Um, so a climate of hope really tries to um, help people understand the emotions that they're having around climate change and to help them feel more, more positive and, and more, as Lisa said, rationally hopeful about the future because we do have these amazing things that are already happening in Utah in terms of solutions. Well, I want to... I believe, Lisa, you mentioned that uh, you, you describe what is happening in the state of Utah with respect to climate. What is, give some examples of how cl uh, Utah's climate is changing with respect to a warming world. 
Sure. So um, some of the impacts that we highlight are the fact that winters now are shorter and warmer in Utah. Mm-hmm. The, day, the um, time between the uh, first freeze in the winter and the last freeze mm-hmm. in the spring is 37 days shorter now than it was in the 1930s. Wow. So, and we highlight that with something that's relatable, um, which is a photograph of ice skating on Liberty Park Pond. That used to be something people did every winter, but hasn't been allowed since the 1980s for safety reasons because it's not cold enough in the winter anymore. Right. So 37 days shorter, obviously on both sides. So 18 days roughly on both sides. Yeah, I don't know how the distribution falls out, but but a total of 37. It's it's a little later in arriving and earlier in departing. Mm -hmm. Wow, and and uh, okay, so that's one example. Um, there's probably biological examples uh, that uh, how the climate is impacting our biology or forest or so. Yeah, I mean, one of the big ways we see that, of course, is in forest fires. So right. one of the um, examples we give is um, smokier summer skies. So you know that bark uh, beetles, right? Infestations, uh, non-native species associated like that. All those things are contributing to increased forest fires. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the drought. Certainly, mega drought. We have a great example in the exhibit of um, Lone Rock in Lake Powell, where you can see now that it's you know completely standing on a dry mud flat. Where in the 1980s, you can see the bathtub ring of how high the lake used to be in. Okay. So, in gathering all of this information, uh, how did you get? You know, you obviously are working with historical pictures, historical data, um, but this was an idea that came about when? So how long has this been curating? How long have you been creating this exhibit? Yeah, the exhibit, we started the very first uh, surveys with our visitors to understand what they were thinking about climate change just before the pandemic in January and February of 2020. And and since then, we've been collaborating with scientists at the University of Utah and with people and communities all around the state. And that has been the most exciting part of this collaboration. It's just been, the more I've talked to people, the more hopeful I've gotten when you realize just how many people are tackling this issue and how many innovative solutions are being implemented already throughout the state in in really surprising places that you might not expect. Yeah, you had mentioned Catherine Hayhoe, which we had on the show Mm -hmm. about a year ago, who had come to speak. uh, And there's another girl, uh, Molly Kaiwatha. I I think I mispronounced her last name, but she is also speaking to hope in the climate sphere. And what are some of the things that you are, um, I guess, hoping for as people come through the exhibit because it sounds like it's something for all ages so what are some of those big takeaways that you really want people to get out of this exhibit well i'll give one and maybe lynn can can chime in as well what i'm hoping people will take away is the idea that that we still have an opportunity to create a thriving future a future that we want to live in in a world with a changing climate and that we have agency we can make choices now and we can take action at uh, the community level in groups that we belong to to bring that change about. Lynn? 
And I'll add to that, um, a big hope that we all have is that people leave being able to have more productive conversations about the climate change. Mm. And people leave excited to engage in these conversations about exactly what Lisa said, that we we still have this opportunity to live in a a thriving world and have a future that that actually can be healthy. Um, And so we want people to be prepared to talk about that. And you said that you conducted surveys. Um, who are these people that you were reaching out to to understand better what they wanted to learn about or what their hope was for the future? Um, we talked to a lot of museum visitors throughout the development of the exhibit. We tested and prototyped every element of the exhibit, often more than once, with Lynn's help because she could bring to it that lens of what is really working in this and what is not and help us refine the interactives and the, and the kind of themes throughout the exhibit. We're speaking with Lisa Thompson and Lynn Zumo from the Natural History Museum of Utah and they're talking about a new exhibition titled A Climate of Hope. Um, along those lines, have you gotten pushback uh, with respect to the exhibition? We know that there are still a percentage of people who think that uh, the planet isn't warming or it's not man-made warming is, is not a, uh, the, the, uh, the reason uh, for the planet warming. Uh, did you get information like that from the surveys or are you, getting, are you getting pushback or comments, let's say, with respect to the exhibit? Lynn, do you want to chime in on yeah. some of the, I think you have some interesting examples from okay. your prototyping. Sure. So uh, one of the main goals of the museum is, or of the exhibit, is to talk about climate change in new ways and with new ideas than than the ideas and words and and, um, messages that have been used in climate communication and climate education in the past. Um, Because one of the premises of the exhibit is that uh, the way we've talked about climate change in the past hasn't always been productive and inclusive for everybody. And there have been these divisions and arguments over this topic. Uh, So we're really trying to use new ideas and and offer people new opportunities to learn about climate change that fits more with who they are. Um, So, for example, we have had some visitors who, who haven't necessarily been interested in the topic or have been uncertain about certain aspects of the exhibit. Um, But one particular part in the exhibit that asks people to imagine what the future could be like, and and, and it asks people to imagine the future that they want, uh, that's a really new way of talking about climate change. And it's it's a hopeful way, and it's an imaginative way. And uh, we've found really great success with that, and that that sort of conversation can engage people who haven't necessarily been participating in conversations about climate change in the past. Hmm. Well, you, you also, I think, Lisa, you mentioned uh, the term climate adapted communities. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what that looks like or how the exhibit expresses that? Sure. So um, there are impacts of climate change that we can't avoid. However, we can take steps now to prepare our communities to be more resilient and to protect the people who live in those communities. And so there's a little diorama in the exhibit uh, where you can explore some of the many strategies. You know, we could only uh, illustrate a few, but things like um, 
uh, permeable pavement that can help with the runoff from mm-hmm. uh, severe rainstorms or uh, cool roofs or really importantly cooling centers where people c- who don't have air conditioning can go during extreme heat events to be safe. And so these are things, you know, I think Utah's really valued being, being prepared for emergency events. And now we need to think about how that plays out in a world with a changing climate and what we can do now to prepare for we, what we know is coming. Okay. And I'm curious, um, for each of you, what part of the exhibit do you each uh, like the most or speaks to you the most? Mm. Lynn, do you want to start? Mm. Sure. Uh, So to me, the most exciting part is the part that I just mentioned when I spoke. The end of the exhibit asks people to imagine what the future could be in a a really positive lens. Um, And it encourages people to imagine these amazing steps we could take to make the world a a better place, to have cleaner air, to have more walkable communities, um, to have a healthier place to live for everybody. And uh, I think that's a really nice way to end the exhibit because it leaves people with a feeling of excitement um, and a, a feeling of hopefulness about the future. And it definitely leaves me with that anytime I see that part of the exhibit. And I'll take the other end of the exhibit, which is the opening experience, mm. which is an immersive aspen grove. You get to walk into this little circular room, um, be surrounded by an aspen grove, grove. There's a projection of the trees, with the leaves rustling in front of you. And then there's a touch screen that'll ask you to think about how you feel when you think about the changing climate in the future. And you'll be able to select an emotion that's in the form of a leaf on the screen and send it into the grove, watch how the grove reacts, and then also see how many other visitors have selected the same emotion that you have so that you'll see that you're part of a community of people who, who feel many different ways and you know, just know that however you're feeling, you're not alone. Does anyone have a uh, imagine a future that is not 37, the winters aren't 37 days shorter <laughs> instead, or maybe only 32 days shorter? I mean, that is part of the rational hope too, or is that irrational hope? I think, you know, there are maybe technologies far in the future where we could, you know, people talk about reversing climate change. Sure. Our imagining futures are kind of more closer to home, things we could uh, uh, imagine happening in the next, you know, few decades. Right. I, I, I mean, I don't mean to be impertinent about it, but that's, that's you know, th- that's the challenge. There's like r- the term rational hope. Uh, there's hope that also has, you know, built-in challenges associated that, that maybe we're not going to reduce our winters by 37 days. You know, at some point, it's going to be 38 and 39 and 40 days shorter. Maybe we level it off at some point. That's the that's the challenge here. You don't want to be Pollyannish about right, it. Right, right. And I think we need to say that um, the world will be different. You yeah. know, it's not the same world, but it doesn't mean it has to be, you know, Mad Max world either. We don't right. have to live in an apocalyptic dystopian world. It won't be the same, but we could do things to make it still a thriving world. Right. Warming is here and more of it is coming. It's, it's at this point, it's like, how warm do you want it? You know, and how, yeah. how dry do you want it? And, uh, you know, and, and what kind of res- level of resiliency do we need to employ going forward? And so we need to all adapt solutions that, that limit that warming. 
right? And I think that's one of the messages of the exhibit is that there's not just a single silver bullet solution right. here, that there are many paths and that there's probably some, you know, aspect of this that will resonate with you. You mm -hmm. know, there's a, a, a challenge and a solution that you can become involved in in a way that you can contribute. Okay. And moving back to the title of it, Chris, A Climate of Hope. I have hope, <laughs> but there's also rational, it's rational Absolutely. hope. Absolutely. And I understand, I understand where you're coming from. And I, I love the fact that this brings dialogue. Uh, this exhibit will have people talking. This exhibit will have people discussing. Will have people creating rational ideas. You know, I'm, my hope is that some of the younger set comes through here, and and they're the next ones that develop that uh, information, data, technology that helps uh, us in the future to um, adapt to what's happening in a better way. Absolutely. There's a section of the exhibit called Innovators Needed. We need those great ideas. Right. Absolutely. Right. La last minute. Uh, Lynn, do you want to add anything? Um, just that, again, it, it is something different than climate learning experiences in the past. So mm. we definitely encourage people to come check it out. And where do they go and tell us a little bit more about how you get there, what the tickets are like, and when it starts. Yeah, so the exhibit opens this weekend, and it's a really special weekend at the museum because it's also our behind-the-scenes event. And this is um, on the 11th and 12th, Saturday and Sunday, the only time during the year when visitors can go back into the collection spaces and see um, what's stored there and also go into the uh, Paleo Prep Lab at the museum. And so wow. uh, in honor of um, a Climate of Hope, the behind the scenes is themed around telling stories of change this year. And so um, I encourage folks to go to the museum's website to make sure you can get a ticket for this weekend at nhmu.utah.edu. And um, because it's Veterans Day weekend, veterans will have free admission. Oh, oh wonderful. Wow. Paleo Prep Lab. That, those, those three words are just uh, draw me. Well, come <laughs> check it out. Okay. We'll have to do a field trip, Chris. Maybe we can do a live broadcast. <laughs> we, we can do many things, Claire. We could try. Lisa Thompson and Lynn Zumo, uh, both from the Natural History Museum of Utah, talking about uh, the, uh, the exhibition, A Climate of Hope. Website, real quick. Yeah, www.nhmu.utah.edu. Perfect. Uh, Lisa and Lynn, thank you again so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us.